A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hey, welcome back to part two of my interview with Jenny Santi. Another thing we get from giving is a sense of significance that's beyond material success or entrepreneurial success. And I've seen this in the people I've worked with. Are you familiar with, I'm sure you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, right? I talk about it almost All every day. All the time. Yeah. Have you talked about how Maslow actually revised changed? it so yes. that at the end it was transcendence? Yes, yes. absolutely. It's yeah. such a little known fact, yeah. but it's something that I came across as I was doing my research. And should we just talk about it briefly? Yeah, please. Yes. And absolutely. Lead the way. So the commonly held belief is that Maslow's hierarchy, that the highest level in Maslow's hierarchy is the level of self-actualization, which means... Help me out here, Brian. What what does self actualization mean? Is it about some achieving will, some will say your human goals? human flourishing, becoming the most complete version of ourselves right. that we can? In fact, there's a term that Aristotle referred to that was along the same lines. He called entelechy, mm -hmm. which is this idea that there's some kind of a perfect form or an archetype that every object for for Aristotle it was not just humans, but it was every plant, every rock, every person has some kind of ideal form to which it's aspiring to be. Yes. So this idea emotionally, spiritually, physically, that self-actualization is closing that gap between where we are and what we can be. Yes. So what I found very interesting and still very little known, and I'm glad I'm glad we're talking about, is that Abraham Maslow as he was close to, to his death, revised that hierarchy based on his reflections and his studies. And he, before he died, he actually revised the highest one to be not self-actualization, but self-transcendence. Self-transcendence when you invoke the needs of others before you. And that's the highest level of human need. Isn't that amazing that we, yeah. we need that, we want that. And so for people who have achieved all the basics and more than the basics, this is what's left. And I've seen this time and time again. The most successful people in the world, they do search for this kind of meaning. And they do, I've seen among, among the, the enlightened ones, they do get a sense of greater significance and purpose and fulfillment and a feeling of love when they feel like, yes, I was able to make a difference. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, I talk about that a lot in this idea that we rise by lifting others, right? That we can continue to ascend the hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy, toward self-transcendence perhaps, or toward self-actualization as we help others no matter where they are on the pyramid. 
And I love two other quotations that I think are appropriate from your book that I just want to share here. Sure. And I promise I won't read the whole book, but, <laughs> you can. but there's a few book. things. Yeah, I won't read it all on here, but I love this one that you quote the Buddha. Mm. If you light a lamp for someone else, it will also brighten your path. I love that. That's and beautiful. then this Italian proverb that a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And those to me were perfect examples of this we rise as we lift others that we can continue to ascend and if we feel a sense of emptiness meaninglessness you know purposelessness directionlessness passionlessness whatever that very often maybe always is because we're looking inward we're looking inward in a selfish way not outward and it's such a dance it seems like such a dance or a paradox for me because there's this one aspect of which it's important to nourish and care for ourselves so that we have something to give because if it's always externally now I'm kind of taking over the interview and you can hear I'm a little bit of a soapbox, but I was also touched by what you wrote in the book about self-care Yes, because you include 10 points and say there's more, but here's just 10 things I've found that have helped me to be balanced or nourished or whatever. Will you talk about why you included that and maybe just give the reader or the listener here a sense of, you know, why did you include it and, and what were some of the most important things you learned there? Well, I want to share something that's that's deeply personal and that I've become uh, more comfortable talking about only after the first edition hardcover copy of my book came out. So this was actually not in in the hard cover version of the book. This only this was only something I decided to put forward and put out there when the paperback came out. And and just for the benefit of people who are who are maybe not familiar with how book publishing works, which I, I was one of those people just five years ago. Usually the first thing that comes out is a hard cover. And when some time has passed and they feel like the book the, the book has a longer tail, then they release they release a paperback. So there's about a year in between that. And in that year that I was going around talking about this book, talking about the benefits of giving, I realized that I wasn't very forthright about my own experience and what what my own story is. Oh man, why didn't we start here? <laughs> We're just gonna edit it so the listener hears, okay. But what do you mean? What are you saying? What I'm saying is that I personally felt very troubled and insecure about the fact that I just wrote a book with happiness in the title when I myself have suffered from clinical depression. And because of the stigma attached to this condition, I tried to keep it under wraps, especially as I was coming out, becoming more public about oh, she's the author of this book, The the Giving Way to Happiness. So I thought, oh, then I must really be very happy (laughs) all the time. (laughs) Although anyone who knows human nature knows (laughs) we teach what we need to learn. Yes. Right. And I've heard at Esalen, a sign still hangs, which says, and we are our our own worst student. (laughs) Yes. But carry on. So in the first, in the hardcover, you didn't have this section on self-care. I didn't have that section on self-care. And that's a, I didn't have that section that talked about my own experience of, of feeling depressed, of going through these moments in my life that were very dark, very lonely. 
despite all the blessings I had, despite the beautiful things and then people around me. Uh, it was just there regardless. Yeah, and, and by the way, because you've talked about the privilege in which you grew up, and, and I did as well, and I wonder if this was the same for you, that in some ways that merely exacerbated or amplified because it's like, I have so much, why am I not happy? Yes, yes. Right. So it, it serves rather than somehow ameliorating, that's a difficult word to say, in, in, instead of kind of washing that away, for me, it amplified the yes. sense of whatever guilt or... In fact, well, I, I've always thought, and I feel like I, I, I know so much about this because I've, I've lived the experience. I've always thought that this is one of the worst things that you can say to someone who is sad or depressed, one of the worst things you can say is, oh, cheer up, count your blessings. Look what is around you. Look how many other people are suffering. Look how many children are hungry. Look at the wars in these other countries. You're not dealing with that. Come on, cheer up, snap out of it, right? That to me makes me even sadder because in those moments when I feel really bad, and someone reminds me of how much worse it is for other people, then what I say is, oh, wow. Then you know what? I don't want to be part of this world that is so full of misery and suffering and sadness. And it doesn't even have to be my own misery or sadness that makes me want to give up on the world. But just realizing that there are so many people suffering and and. Why? Why should that make me feel any better? Because, yeah. because I'm luckier? No. Yeah. So how did the decision come about to talk about that in the book and then to include this thing about self-care? And, and compound question, what were some of the things that you included? I mean, I know because I read, <laughs> but what were some of those things for somebody listening? Sure. I thought to include that there because there were really so many things I learned as a result of my personal experiences. And when you go through these things and, and overcome these challenges, which I feel to some extent I have, then you just wanna share what has worked for you, right? So some of the things, I won't go through all the 10, but some of the things I found essential for me are one is spending time in nature. I found it very healing to just take some time for myself. In New York City, the best thing I can do really is, is walk around Central Park. Yeah. And I find that it, it really recharges me to be around trees and in and, and nature, to, to feel grass on my feet. And it's just, it's just something that I don't just want, but I realize I really need. Yeah. Do you, do you know this term? I just learned this this year, this term biophilia. Have you heard this? Is it a, what is it? Life, love. I'm just thinking etymology. What does that Biophilia mean? Biophilia is defined as, so this is on mw.com, a human tendency to interact or be closely associated with other forms of life in nature. Ah. This does say a hypothetical human tendency, but basically this desire, this yearning mm -hmm. to connect with nature. But yeah. maybe that's that. I haven't looked at it that way, but to me, it's just intuitive that, you know, when I'm, I'm there or when I'm hiking up a mountain, I just feel like my problems seem to melt away. And maybe it's a combination of exercise, the endorphins, the fresh air. I don't know what it is, but yeah. I just find it very important for self-care. Yeah. And one of the people that you interviewed for this book, Goldie Hawn, 
Yes. I understand you're not going to hang out with her too long before you're mindful and meditating. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Another, another thing that I've found is that some kind of practice, whatever you want to call it, whether it's prayer for some people, reflection for others, journaling, meditation, mindfulness, sitting with yourself. I find that that's very important. And I, I do find that I start to feel antsy when I've, I have not been practicing anything. For me, it doesn't mean that I have to sit in a yogi position, in a lotus position for an hour every day. In fact, last year I did something that I found extremely difficult that I realized I do not want to do again. I, I, I am in no way discouraging people from, from experiencing it, but I did the 10 day Vipassana. Those are a silent retreat, oh, aren't they? Oh gosh, for 10 days, 10 days of silence. For some people doing a Vipassana retreat is the best gift you can give others. <laughs> <laughs> to you give know? others, to yeah. get out of their sight. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I did that because, you know, I, I'm very committed to self-development and I thought that's a good way to just go for it. What did you learn? I learned that it's not for me. No. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a great experience. It, it really was. And it was it was a test of my discipline because I'm someone who's very curious. I'm someone who always has to have reading material in front of me. I'm constantly on my phone. I'm constantly multitasking. If I if I'm watching TV, which I never do, I will have a magazine on my lap and I will have my phone in my hand and, and I'm doing three, four things at the same time. So imagine being put in a situation where for 10 days, you're not allowed to say a word and you're not even allowed to make eye contact. I think that sounds wonderful. <laughs> it does. It, it, it really was. I was glad, but, but I don't think I want to do it again. Yeah, no, no rush to go back. <laughs> I totally get that. Well, I want to pace us. Before I, before I transition from this part, I want to share something you shared when we were together earlier today that I love this view, if I may. I want to ask you what your philosophy is when it comes to, you know, kind of the advice or the final words you give to many people, at least in an initial engagement, you know, with potential clients or when you're speaking about philanthropy, I imagine this is something you end with a lot. I'm sure you've heard before that that's, you know, you should give until it hurts because it's, it's probably going to hurt, right? I like to say, don't give until it hurts, but give until it feels great. I think that's so beautiful. And and I knew, you know, when I learned that you had written this book, I was certain I wanted to interview you when in the very first conversation we had, you were talking about how giving can be a source of joy. And you used that word joy probably three or four times. I did, did I? I, well, I find, I've found that one of the things we can do to have an experience of that, that joy and fulfillment is to be more proactive about our giving. Most Giving happens passively. I think the average person gives because they've been casualed, they've been solicited, they've been asked to do something, and they said, uh, sure, why not? Uh, okay, right? But if you think about it, if you do something out of your own volition, then you feel much more, you feel much more in control of it. You feel much more satisfaction because you know you're doing something 
that you want, that you did with intention. And that's something that I would recommend for everyone, not just because it's a, it's a beautiful thing is to do for yourself, but also if you think about it, when you only react or, or only give your time or your money or write checks to charities that already approach you, you're only rewarding the charities that are most, that are the boldest ones or yeah. that have the best fundraising strategy. But these aren't necessarily the people or the organizations that are doing the best work. Maybe there are people there who are doing things quietly, silently, but don't really know how to find you. Yeah. or don't really know how to ask. So if you try and find them, if you try and seek them out and find opportunities to get involved with them, whether as a donor or as a volunteer, I think you'll find it all the more fulfilling. Yeah, I, I think so. Okay, I want to transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Sure, I'm excited. And then I have just two questions for you. One about publishing, one about promotion. Sure. Okay. So the next series of questions is intended for me to ask in short form and kind of stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long so as you I'll want. So I'll just tell you what the first thing that comes to my mind? Yeah. That's okay. perfect. That's perfect. And then I might pull on some of your answers a little bit, but otherwise... We'll just move through this. <laughs> okay. Let's Are go. you ready? I'm ready. All right. Please complete the following sentence oh, gosh. with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a. Life is like a crossword puzzle. Okay. Number two. What is something you are not, which you once were? Depressed. Okay. Number three. If you were required, and I know this can be a stretch, but if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a saying or a phrase or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? I love dogs. Okay. Number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? I've gifted journals to people, blank pages to write on because I think self-reflection is so important. That's really beautiful. Let me ask this before we move off that topic. What's the first book that comes to mind that's had a significant impact on your life? There was a book that my father gave me when I was in elementary school, and it's Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it was so formative for me because I found, I learned early on how to approach situations first considering what's in it for the other person what can i offer them that might be helpful or interesting to them rather than this is what i want i want this can you do it you know and and that really was so important and such a valuable thing to learn i also learned through that book the importance of being grateful and 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 showing that through writing letters and, and, and just, just being thankful to people who have helped you along the way. That's great. I love that book. Number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Well, I never got into alcohol or smoking. So I think that's great. I think so. 
I think you'll probably live. Yeah, I think you probably will live longer. <laughs> yes. Okay. Number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Themselves. I like that answer. Number eight. What is the most important or useful relationship advice you've ever heard and successfully applied? It can be general relationship advice or intimate relationship advice. Oh, wow. I'm not the right person to ask that given my track record, but... What do you mean by that? <laughs> I haven't been the luckiest in that department, but I would say... Maybe I should ask you what's the worst advice. Oh, <laughs> okay, keep, keep going with what, let what's me, been... Let the... me think about this for one moment. Okay. I think you should find someone who loves you not just when you're at your best but when you're at your worst and helps you become better in the process yeah okay number nine aside from compound interest what's the most important lesson you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always or never certain to do with money money doesn't really solve problems not all problems at least I'm not sure how to approach that question. Let me think about it for a second. Perhaps this, to, to whom much is given, much is expected. My parents used to tell me that quite a lot, <laughs> actually, <laughs> yes. Okay, so congratulations, you survived the enlightening lightning round. Oh gosh, wow. <laughs> it, was, it was fun and terrifying at times. You did great, you did great. and. One of the things that I want to say here is that as a way of expressing my gratitude to you, and we're not done yet because I still have those two other questions, yes. but, but I want to say this here is that I have made a hundred dollar microloan through Kiva.org on your behalf to an entrepreneur in the Philippines named Mira, probably Mira, something like that, who lives in Isabella and she's going to use this money to purchase boxes of smoked mackerel. And she's 39 years old and she will improve the quality of life for herself, her family and her community through this. That's great, thank you. Yeah. In fact, here's a, here's a picture of her practice. Oh, wow. Isn't that? Yes. So, thank yes. you for giving me a reason to make that micro loan. Oh, uh, thank you for, for doing that. Yeah. And the other thing I want to, to ask you here to make sure we include it, is if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? I would have them find me on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook. My book is there. I'm also... And Jenny Santi is S-A-N-T-I. I, yes, I, I have a website, jennysanti.com. But if you open it, you might be surprised to see that it has not much to do with my work in philanthropy, not even this book, but my artwork. And this is because, as, as I said to you, I'm a person of many interests. And philanthropy is a very big thing. But lately, I've also been devoting a lot of time into my art. And so I invite you to, to have a look at my work there too. That's awesome, thank you. Okay, oh, and now, and I'm reminded holding your book now that Deepak Chopra wrote the foreword and I got so much right out of the beginning. By the way, just reading some of what he shared, I love his view on even the meaning of selfless and this idea, as Deepak says, 
that selfless means that you have been taken to a place outside yourself. Mm-hmm. It's like, that is really cool. Mm-hmm. What was it like to have him write the foreword for your book? That's pretty cool. You know, I was quite nervous when I asked him because I thought how presumptuous. I have no track record as an author, and he's such a big shot with so many New York Times bestsellers under his belt. But my philosophy, not just when I asked him, but but in, in many in my, many other instances in my life, is that, hey, the worst they can say is no. Yeah. I suspect that if you continue to live with that philosophy, when your final day comes, which hopefully is many, 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 many days from now, whenever it is, that you will have lived a much more fulfilling life than you would have had you lived with virtually any other philosophy. Absolutely. I would think. Okay. What have we not talked about that you might have wanted to explore? Or what else do you think the listener of this interview might find interesting or useful? Just give me a second to chew on that. Sure. Take, take all the time you want. I think one thing that we haven't quite talked about is the idea of family philanthropy, which I know we, we covered in our other conversations, but perhaps not in this, not in this context. But I, I know that one very strong motivator for organized giving or, or even, even just ad hoc giving is, is for parents to show kids values, right? But what I've also learned is that there is a, is a right way and a wrong way to do it. Sometimes we think that just because we brought our, our kids or our relatives along to uh, a volunteer activity or to a charity drive, then that counts for sharing values, but, but it doesn't quite work that way. I remember in my childhood when my my grandparents, my, my parents were helping other people out in their own in their own small ways. I did not see it as an expression of values. In fact, it was something that I almost resented because I felt that what could have gone to me in terms of time or even money is going instead to someone else. And that's because I didn't feel adequately involved in the decision-making. I mean, maybe I didn't deserve to be part of the decision-making, but at least it, it wasn't explained to me why we were doing this and what really is the point. So I would say that if we really want to use philanthropy as a way to teach values to our, our children or our, our loved ones and, and, and get them on board, We really should also ask them, what are they passionate about? What do they care about? I think also that it's all about walking the walk. It's it's not just about talking about these values, but 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 showing them showing them what you can achieve and just let letting them develop their own areas of interest as well. Because kids learn much more from you. From, from what you do than what you say. I mean, to give you an example, there are so many things that, that can be done in, in the sense of, uh, let's say, turning, turning family gatherings into opportunities to do something that's fun for, for kids, but also that makes a difference. Like, uh, like what? Such, as, such as, for example, birthdays and other celebrations. Like, like 
if you want to throw a birthday party for your kids, right? Don't just suddenly give it a charity twist without asking them for their own input. Don't just suddenly host the birthday party in some orphanage or some shelter because they might people, just be traumatized. People really do that, don't people they? People actually do that. Like I, I, I remember being dragged by my by my mother to a, a home for the elderly. And to this day, I'm ashamed to say I don't like going to the homes for the elderly because I I just found it a little bit sad and a little bit forced upon me uh, at that time. And I may be contradicting myself here because I said you should show your children a good example. And my mother definitely showed a good example, except it didn't quite make sense to me why we were doing it at that time. So Yeah. And, and by the way, just to, to jump in, yes. I, I, one of the sentences I underlined in your book was what Bill Gates said about philanthropy should be voluntary. Yes, it should be. It should be voluntary. You shouldn't really be guilt tripped into it, and I know that happens quite a bit, which which leads me to a few other points. You know, one point also about learning to say no. Uh, a mentor of mine once taught me to learn to say no to the things that don't matter as much to me so that I can say yes to the things that do deeply matter to me. And I've also observed among nonprofit leaders that saying no at times helps them do better with the things that are already on their plate. Because saying yes too often not only affects the quality of their, their current projects, but also adds a level of stress not worth taking on. And I think that's true for anyone, whether you're working in nonprofit or working as a volunteer or working in a social business or, or any kind of business. Uh, I think people who do good often feel the pressure to do more and more because there are, once you start getting involved, the invitations to get involved even more start pouring in. And it's really hard to say no because because people like to please others. I I've found that the ones who keep their sanity somehow and stay happy and fulfilled and avoid burnout are the ones who are are comfortable enough to say no so that they can actually follow through with the things that are their priorities and that that they, they've decided to proactively work on themselves. That makes sense. And that's, I think, a particularly interesting perspective when you're writing a book about giving and saying sometimes the thing to do is to say no, right? Yes. Unfortunately, there are just so many things that deserve attention and it's just impossible for any one person or family foundation or volunteer to take on all these different issues. So uh, we just have to make decisions and trade-offs sometimes so that we can actually work on the things that we feel we're better placed to, to make a bigger difference in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I'll ask you one question about writing. And I want to ask for people listening who either are at the point where they know they want 
to write a book, maybe like you were yeah. before, you know, and they don't necessarily know the difference between an agent, an editor, or a publisher, you know, or they don't know where to begin. They don't know how it would all come together or whether they, they are maybe in process, but wondering some days if it's worth it, if it's all going to pay off, if it'll really happen, you know, regardless of where they are along this continuum from idea to in flight, what advice or encouragement do you have for people who are on their way or who want to be? Sure. Well, first of all, a disclaimer. There's a writer who said something that that perfectly encapsulates how I felt about this whole process, which is, I hate writing, but I love having written. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that from time to time. Yes. Oh, God. I... I write a lot, but I swear I do not enjoy the process. It is grueling, it is difficult, it is painfully slow. And first drafts look really horrible. In fact, I don't even wanna look at my first drafts. They're just so embarrassing. I don't want anyone to see those things. But going back to your question and what, what advice would I give? I'd say, ask yourself why you wanna do it. I knew why I wanted to do it. And it was because I believed so much in this message that I was going to do it whether or not I was going to get published by Penguin Random House, which surprisingly I did because I think I I just was in the right place at the right time and and, and found people who were, uh, who believed in me. So I'm very thankful for that. But I was going to do it regardless. If I if I had no choice but to just ask one of my clients to, uh, hey, can you do me a favor and just print this out? You have a fancy printer, right? Can you just distribute this? Because I believe in this message and I want it out there. I would have done it. And writing a book is so difficult. It requires so much of your time and your focus. And if you don't really care for what you're writing, just as what we talked about in terms of giving, if you really don't feel that passionate about what you're doing, you're going to drop it. You're just going to, it's just going to turn out to be another stack of papers under your desk, another unfinished project. And it's not worth it. Yeah, why create unnecessary yes. stress for yourself? Yeah, what I find so amazing is that, I mean, I never expected to be published in this way in the first place. I never expected my book to be available in, in Barnes & Noble. I, I remember the day that I, uh, they call it the pub date. The, the, that's the publishing industry term for when your book comes out. The pub date, the pub date. In the beginning, I didn't even know what that meant. What's the pub pub date? You mean we all get together for drinks? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, no, you idiot. It's publishing date. So I look forward to that like crazy. And I remember a friend taking me to Barnes and Noble and Fifth Avenue to look at my book on the shelf. And I cried. (laughs) And I also cried when I got my galley. This is another term which I didn't know about back then. A galley is basically like the first draft of your book in a book form. So when your stack of papers or your or your electronic document begins to look like a physical book. And I remember getting it in the mail and I I collapsed on the floor and cried because I was so emotional about it. I know it's really cheesy, but that's that's exactly how I felt. 
but you know, as, as, as I'm saying, it's, it's a, it's been an amazing journey and I never expected to be here in the first place. And although my book is not like a New York Times bestseller, it's not something that it's on, it's not like the book on everyone's lips, but, but what I've found most fulfilling and amazing is that so many people who have read the book have actually approached me from out of the blue and said, I was so moved by what you wrote. I was so touched and I learned so much. And I've made friends from these people who approached me, friends who I I otherwise would not have met. And it's something that I will always have and I'm I'm so grateful I had I had the opportunity. I'm so grateful that I I powered through the difficulties, but that I I, I do recognize I was I was given a lucky break. I, I was very lucky to have had this opportunity and the time to do it. Well, I think you've done a wonderful thing with that lucky break, which I suspect it's probably it was probably a lot more hard work than luck involved, is my guess. <laughs> anyway. remember, remember, I hate writing, but I love having written. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, then the final question here is about what advice do you have, advice or encouragement do you have for writers when it comes to the promotion of a book? And I just want to put this in here too, that I think a lot of people think that finishing the manuscript or getting the book published is the finish line. Oh, no, it's right? hardly. And? That is in and of itself very significant, no question. But I think a lot of us won't be satisfied just when that happens, but we actually want readers to find it. We want them to pick it up, buy it, engage with it, have it make a meaningful difference for them. So with all that as kind of background, things I suspect you know very well, what advice or encouragement do you have for people listening when it comes to the promotion of a published work like this? One thing that is just a reality, and it's an unfortunate reality, is that there are so many amazing books out there that perhaps never got read because they were not promoted properly or they didn't end up in Oprah's inbox and, 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 and it never got on her book club and, you know, things like that. But let me share with you a, a, an example of something that I used to think was super duper important, but turns out not to be so, perhaps given the way the world has changed now. I used to think that book tours or events are so important, like, you know, signings in a bookstore or literally hopping from city to city, talking to people about what you've written. That's that's probably still the mode for for certain kinds of authors. But I I realized that when you do that kind of thing, you don't really touch on as wide an audience as you could have. I mean, compared to doing things like this, for example, or or like like writing an article or something that has the potential to be, uh, what's the word they use, viral, (laughs) because of the world these days, right? Technology is there to support certain kinds of activities that are able to spread your message within minutes, within hours, within days to a a very, very wide audience, much more than you can cram into a bookstore for a book signing, much more than you can do if, if you spend a whole month or two months just going from city to city, promoting your book and and tiring yourself out, uh, which is what happened to me. 
I did that and it felt really nice. It, I think it was good for the ego. It felt like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm an author now. And it's it was really, really cool. It was fun. And yet, you know, it's not it's not the most important thing when it comes to book promotion. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. I just had a call a day before yesterday with someone who's sold, whose latest book has sold more than 100,000 copies. And he told me, that more than 80% of book sales occur, no surprise, through Amazon, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. these days. So, you know, what you're saying is right in line, even though you didn't specifically mention, you know, that the importance of a book tour and other ways of reaching people, especially online, probably matter much more for sales than ever before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, any final advice, encouragement, words of wisdom? personal motto, anything that you want to leave our readers, or I keep saying our readers. <laughs> I hope you're readers, by the way. <laughs> anything that you want to leave listeners with? One thing I, I, I like to say, and, and you know, the reality is that this is really hard work. Giving or volunteering or philanthropy, however you want to call it, it's, it's hard work and it could be very draining even for the most passionate among us. But something that I've found very helpful for me and that I've seen in the people that I've met and worked with is that we can all find strength in each other. It's incredibly helpful to surround ourselves with some kind of community of support, colleagues, mentors, other friends who, who care about us and, and perhaps also care about the same things that we do and help us stay on track, help us stay positive. And it's also helpful to have role models that we look up to that inspire us to stay stay passionate and committed over time because most of the issues that we will try to address, whether it's about the environment or health or women and children or abuse or depression or whatever it is, or climate change. Or animals. We can't save them all and, and we will fail and we will, we will be discouraged. But if we do this in collaboration with others and we find strength in the group, I think we'll be fine. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for writing this book, for making the journey here to Utah, for talking with me on this interview. I'm really grateful to you. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. It was such a pleasure. And it's great to be here in Utah for the very first time. Yeah. It is the center of the universe. If you haven't discovered that yet, hmm, you pay We attention. need to talk about that because I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, and thank you, everybody listening. Talk to you next time. Thank you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me 
and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.